Okay, y'all, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. How are we doing with, I've seen all these folks come in. How are we doing with seats? There's seats over here. There's a group over here. Fantastic. Okay, were y'all all getting coffee or something? All right, good night. That's two of my kids back there. What's going on here? Honey, will you please talk to our kids? All right, identity theft is no longer just a bad day or two days or three days for the occasional purpose, is it now? No, in fact, the Federal Trade Commission released this past week, it's the top complaint in America. Uh, From 2011 to 2012, identity theft has increased 32%. Wow. Florida, it's off the charts. It's the number one top place that identity theft is taking place, two times the amount than the runner-up, which is Georgia. Florida... 360 Floridians per 100,000 were victims in 2012, twice the rate of Georgia. So many experts are saying what? It's no longer if it happens to you, but what? When? One article I read on Friday, I just loved it. I love the sensational stuff. You know, it kind of draws me in and I get, you know, excited a little bit. Your identity will be stolen, this article says. At some point, an identity thief is going to get you. The time to prepare is now. Actually, it was yesterday. Right. You know, I wanted to scroll down and see if they had one of those identity theft companies that was sponsoring this article or something, right? Our passage today, however, completely agrees with this. Identity theft is epidemic, and it's personally devastating. Years ago when I was doing campus ministry, uh, a friend of mine, you know who the friend is? You met him last week. The one who thought he was Batman, remember him? Well, in the 80s, he gave me a book. This is 89, probably. I was, I was at campus ministry at Brownie, and he said over the phone, he said, listen, I've got the book for you, Jeff. You will love it. It's called The Born Identity. Now, this is before the blockbuster mega what movie series that's going on right now, right? This is, this is back when the book was now becoming an international bestseller and was sweeping cross-cultural translations to all parts of the world. Um, and I just want to say too, again, I mean, you hear it over and over. The book is 10 times better than the movie. Always, always the character. I mean, it's just good. Anyhow, if you read the book and you get offended, I read it a long time ago, so I'll just pretend I didn't remember that part. Um, well, I start, I picked up the book and I started reading and I couldn't put it down. I mean, and if appointment was late, if he didn't show, if I got there early, I'm walking across Brown's campus, and this wasn't weird at Brown. In fact, I thought I was culturally relevant. I think there are more weird people on that campus than anywhere per square foot on the planet, right? I didn't walk into death. There's, uh, oh, that's a long story. There's a guy whose name was Death. They called him Death. He would wear a, a hood and a he looked like a dementor or whatever those guys walking on campus. And I tried it. My goal was just to say hi to him. Hey, death. All right. Why did I? What happens in the second service, I sometimes can't account for. I took Bourne to dinner with me. My favorite place, this Irish pub. I always went there because there was only a couple of them at that time in Providence. Um, I only cooked two gourmet meals, and that was cereal and sandwiches, so I had to eat other places, and I did often. I couldn't put Bourne down. Why? Why couldn't I? 
because you, the reader, and Jason Bourne, you didn't know who he was. But all these guys are after him. And he seems to possess these phenomenal skills that guys really like. And they start coming out, and he doesn't even know why they're coming out. He has lethal hands. He's an expert with weapons. He has this sixth sense for espionage and destabilizing danger by bringing more of it to whatever happens. As the story advances, Bourne's personal struggle is gripping. He's in the middle of an identity crisis. Um, He can't remember who he was. He has no past. He can't remember who he is. He has no present. He's stuck. He can't build an identity. Over and over again in a book, he'd say, who am I? And then he would say, in that far deeper place in his heart, because he's beginning to get to know who he is, what if I don't like the answer? The ultimate reason the born identity was such a smash internationally and now is such a smash, well, I shouldn't say the first book, the book communicates it more, is the main character, Jason Bourne, hit a nerve across cultures and across peoples all over the world. And that nerve is, who am I? And will I like the answer? How do you build an identity? Jason Bourne hit the nerve of everyone's deepest struggle. How do you build an identity? So I want to welcome you to the highest peak in Mark so far. We've realized that this is Peter's confession. This is the first human being that gets Jesus right. Peter says, Jesus, you're the Christ. And we learned last week when we zeroed in on it, that meant that the Christ meant the cross. But there's another peak here, and it's tucked behind that one, and it sits in the shadows. It's almost forgotten, but it's there. It's The first time in Mark that God himself tells you who you are. Your real, true identity. So please stand for the hearing God's word. A reading from Mark 27 through 9-1. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. 
And whosoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does a man profit to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can give a man for what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Did you catch that last verse? Did you see that? They will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. That's phenomenal. And what we're going to look at today is the only power to give you an identity. Nothing else has the authority to do it. Nothing else has the power to do it. Okay, so let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would actualize this passage. Uh, that wouldn't just be words about you, uh, it would be your words to our very soul. And we ask this in your name, amen. All right, I want you to look at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Uh, This is probably, what we're going to look at in verse 34, that passage right there, is probably the most misunderstood and misapplied passage in all of Mark. All right, I want you to look at, Uh, follow me. That's used 19 times in Mark. It always means a true disciple. It means a real attachment to Jesus. It's synonymous with a real faith in Jesus, someone that really gets who Jesus is and trusts him. This is why Jesus calls the crowd and the disciples to hear what he's about to say, because it's a universal call. He's about ready to teach us about what real Christianity is all about, what real discipleship, real faith, following him really looks like. Now, what I just said so far is so good. Everyone across the church broadly agrees with this. What I'm about to say is where all the wheels fall off. Here's the number one common way to teach this passage today. Real discipleship, real Christianity is a certain level of surrender, a certain level of submission on your part. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. When I was a student at UMass, we knew spring had finally come. We knew that, oh, there is a sun. We knew when that happened, when we forgot what birds sounded like. Listen to that. It's not a a snowblower. It's birds. When we would realize that uh, people are friendly again. They'll talk to you on campus again. They might even smile at you. We knew when spring had finally come when the weird dude with the big wooden cross came rambling into our campus, right? I don't know if he makes his way down south, but he's all over the northeast. He came every spring to passionately pronounce with all the prophetic zeal he could muster all the evil and all the wicked and all the sins that we college students were doing at UMass. And he would call you out right there on the spot. And then he would call for a complete total surrendering, a complete total yielding, a a life that's sold out to God. Always. The first time I saw him, he dragged his wooden cross across campus because he was fully committed. By the time I graduated, he had attached these little wheels to the bottom of his cross. And he would drag it across campus to help him be fully committed. I mean, how do you measure a surrender? 
How do you know when you've surrendered enough? How do you measure your yielding right now? Your commitment. I mean, we're good at measuring other people's. How do you measure yours, right? Jesus is not asking you to save yourself through the level of your surrendering here. Jesus is not asking you to save yourself through your strong faith and your strong commitment and your spiritual hunger and your spiritual need and your spiritual passion and your spiritual worship and love for him. And then you've got to try to maintain it because if you try to maintain it the rest of your life, then you, you forge a deeper communion and intimacy with him that's really a life that's blessed and you're really on his first team and you avoid his second team and you avoid the bench. We are not saved and we do not continue in the Christian life by the level of our surrender, our submission, or our faith. If that was true, then our performance would be our Savior. I want to make sure we get this. One author puts it this way. It's not the level, but the object of your faith that saves you. So if real faith and real discipleship and real Christianity is not the level of our commitment to Jesus, what is it? It's more radical than that. Look at verses 35 through 38. Do you see how they begin? Your translation should have four in the bulletin, CESV, four. What does this mean? Jesus is giving you further information. He's giving you further explanation. He's unpacking what he just said in verse 34. He's going to pull out deeper contours and deeper cuts and, and more color to the reality of what he just said in 34. For whoever would lose his life. No. Whoever would lose his life will lose it. That doesn't make sense. What's, it, what's the translation in the ESV? Chainer? Yes. Okay, I, I did not write that right in my notes. <laughs> whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever will lose his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Now before we go, that he's, that's what the, prophetic, the prophets would say when they would go into Israel. Because they're talking about spiritual adultery. Of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father and his holy angels. You know what's so fascinating about this passage is the meaning of the word life. It's used two times as life and two times as soul, but it's the same Greek word. You know what that Greek word is? Suke. You know what that means? Psyche. It's where we get psychology from. Jesus is not talking about your physical life. He's talking about your very being, your soul, who you are. He's talking about your personhood, your selfhood, your sense of self, what we call an identity. Now, our culture talks about identity and how, self-image and self-worth. Sometimes it gets it, sometimes it doesn't, but that's the gist here, okay? Okay. So Jesus is not scratching the surface of our lives, trying to push you to have more commitment and trying to push you to surrender more. Push you is not the meaning of denying yourself and taking up your cross. What he's doing, he's going to the very core of your being and he's talking about our identity, who we are, right? And what he's saying here is if we try to save our identity, if you try to build 
generate your own identity, if you try to define yourself, which means complete yourself, try to make yourself acceptable, try to perfect yourself, try to justify your worth and your value, try to give yourself a sense of an intact identity, if we try to do that, we will lose ourselves. Ourselves will flow out of us like water through our hands until there's nothing left, until we have no self left. This is what happens when we build our identities on somebody loving us, on our careers, on what people think of us, on our performance and our achievement and how well we do things. And then even the bigger one, it might even be bigger than what people think of us, what we think of us. Our view of ourselves. Am I a good mother? Am I a good husband? Am I a good parent? Am I a beauty? How am I with athletically? I'm a musician? Look at verse 36 and 37. Do you see what Jesus is saying when we do this? It will never work. This stuff is not big enough and it's not bright enough. It's not powerful enough to give us an identity. Jesus is saying, look, don't build your identity on gaining the things of the world. And he's not meaning bad things. This is the world he created. This is the world with good stuff. This is the world that he said in Genesis is good. A career is good. Families are good. Love's good. Romance is good. Sex is good. It's all good. But don't try to build your identity around it. Because you'll lose it. You'll lose yourself. Verse 38. It's a hard passage, isn't it? Verse 38 is saying the worst thing that can happen in the next life is never to build your identity around Jesus in this life. To not build our identity around Jesus in this life is to be ashamed of him. It's to say, no, this and this will give me what you can't. There's nothing more miserable for a human being than to be ashamed by God, to experience the shame of God. Remember it was C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory. Remember what he said? There's nothing better. He said, oh, it it dawned on me. I I realized what what human life is all about. I saw saw parents, I saw fathers walk into a room, and their two-year-old, the three-year-old, the children would just perk up. They came alive when he started praising them. When the father delighted in him and praised his son, he literally came alive, and he said, that's it? That's what we were made for. To have the praise of the ultimate cosmic Father in heaven, we come alive. So what could be worse? What could be more depersonalizing? What could be more shattering to the soul than to have that person be ashamed of you? All right, Jesus spoke these words, 34, 9 through 1, right after he gives the clearest view of who he is. The Christ means the cross. Why did he do this? Because he wants to give you a new self, a new identity. He's saying, listen, the way the world works 
is everyone's trying to build their identity ultimately around some form of performance, some form of self-trusting self-effort. That is an old identity. It's under the old regime. It's under the old man. It's under Adam. And it will pass away. I want to give you your true self. A new identity. So look at verse 35. But whoever loses his life, we now know that means self, identity, for my sake and for the gospels will save it. Here's where we find ourselves. Right there in verse 35 is where we find ourselves. Right there in 35 is our true identity. Here is the only power to give us an intact identity. It's the only power to give you a self that's solid, a self that's secure, a self that forgets self, a self that's free to live and free to love. It's that power that's being talked about in 9-1. Some of you are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. It is that kind of power that is unleashed at the resurrection that only has the power and the authority to give you an intact identity, a solid self. Nothing else can. It's that kind of power that um, when you are criticized, you're not condemned in your very being. When that kind of power reaches in and gives you an identity, you can have here a relationship go bad, but it doesn't sink your ship. You can have something go wrong with your career and your calling, but you're not utterly crushed. Who you are doesn't disintegrate. Here, you can be deeply flawed and you can be imperfect. You can fall short in your commitments and your surrenderings and your yieldings. You can be a messy, struggling dynamic sinner and you will be accepted and loved and righteous at the same time. You will be intact. Yourself will be solid. So don't miss this. Jesus says for my sake or for me is what he's saying and for the gospel. Keller helped me out here. He says, listen, this is not abstract theology. He loves what's being said here. I'm now loving what's being said here. He's saying it's for me. Lose it for me and for the gospel. You find yourself is what he's saying. He's saying this isn't abstract theology. It's not saying, okay, find your identity in God. So the general thrust of the point is, listen, you've been finding your identity in these things. Look, they don't, what does it profit you? Stop that. Okay. Try it. And come over here and find your identity in God. That's not what's being said here. It's not abstract. If it is, it'll keep us still going with willpower, still going with our surrendering, still going with trying harder. What he says is absolutely breathtaking. He says, find it in me. It's really personal. Who I am. Now, we've got lots of data right now about who Jesus is so far in Mark. Who is he? Uh, he's the one that can stop evil spirits in their tracks. He's the one that can stop a storm in its tracks. He's the one that can stop you and me in our tracks. He's the ultra king, the better David, 
the Son of God, right? But he's also not just about who he is, it's also about, remember he's saying, in me, in me. It's so personal, he's saying, I know you, I see you, I know everything about you, and I love you. I love you first, and I love you last. I identify with you completely. And this deep, personal way is also very specific, isn't it? Jesus is saying, find your identity in my gospel. Now, that's just absolutely huge. How do you do that? It kind of goes like this. Jesus is saying to us, look, I lost my identity. I lost myself. I lost my soul. I was undone on the cross. So you never would lose yourself. So that you can always have an intact identity, a solid self. You could be saying here, I carried the burden of your identity idolatry. I carried it all the way to the cross. I carried how you try to find your identity in something and someone other than me. I carried that idolatry so that you can have a genuine, true identity. So that you can be completely acceptable. You yourself can be completed in me, perfected in me, without blemish and spot and wrinkle in me, righteous in me. This uh, is how we become our true selves. His winning is now your winning. His worth is now your worth. His work is now your work. His performance is now your performance. His accomplishment is now your accomplishment. His success is now your success. His honor is now your honor. So we are free to fail because he succeeds. We are free to lose because he always wins. See how this works? Okay. Well, let's go back to verse 34, shall we? What does this mean? George Mueller, do you you all know who he is? Uh, The Martins know who he is. He loved orphans. And he deeply connected with God and God's gospel mission through prayer. In fact, his prayers, his praying life, and his answers to prayers are epic and legendary. (laughs) They're heroic. They're the stuff of like action novels. They're the stuff like, no, really? No, come on. That couldn't have happened. Um, He said that he noted two things in his life that had to happen before he could be free with God, free with himself, and free with other people. You want to hear what he said in his own words? Here it is. You ready? I had to die to what George Mueller thinks about George Mueller. Number one. You can't really live for God's glory or have fellowship with God if you are thinking about what you think of yourself. C.S. Lewis said it this way. Listen, you cannot, you cannot hope and then think about your hoping at the same time. It doesn't work that way. You can't love someone and listen to someone and be engaged in a conversation, but think about loving them, think about listening about them, thinking about what you're saying and what they're saying at the same time. For preachers, we can't preach and teach and communicate and then turn around and think about preaching, teaching, and communicating at the same time. It just can't happen. 
That's what he's saying. Then he goes on and says, listen, the day had to come when I had to die. This is number two to what other people thought about me. He just mentioned the two identity thieves, the major big ones for every single one of us. Human approval and self-approval. Those are the two major identity thieves today. So true discipleship, real Christianity, isn't about willpower. It's not about your greater levels of surrendering or your faith or your commitment to Jesus. It's about denying yourself. It's about taking up your cross. Well, what does that mean? It means this. Deny your own self-trusting efforts to build your own identity. Deny yourself means stop trusting in yourself to build your identity. Stop trusting in other things to gain an identity. If Paul was here, and then there's about the cross, you see what, pick up your cross. If Paul was here, here's how he would interpret that, because he does in Romans 6. He says, look, if you by the Spirit put to death, kill, kill the works of the flesh, and that means the works of self-effort. If you by the Spirit kill the works of the flesh, you'll live. Taking up your cross is dying to your self-effort. It's dying to trying to be your own savior. It's dying to trying to control your own life. It's dying to trying to build your own identity. It's about our true identity being in Jesus and his gospel. His worth is your work, your worth. His work is your work. So we are loved, we are accepted, we are approved, we are righteous. So we don't need the end, the end struggle. The struggle of our lives is over. We no longer have to try to build an identity. We already have one. 